Will you please pray with me? Wonderful God of the north and the south and the east and the west, God who sees no barriers or dividers along the countries in the world, you see no barriers or divided between our past and our cultures. You see us simply as your children. We come to you, O oh God, and pray that our hearts and minds will be open to your word. Illuminate us, Holy Spirit, so that we might receive your word, the word that you have for each of us here today. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Many of you are aware that uh, there are a team of us that just returned from India. Although Peter was not aware, when I came back after being gone for two weeks, he said, when are you leaving for that trip? <laughs> Thanks, Peter. <laughs> it was interesting because before going, I wasn't sure what to expect. I know that that was true of my colleagues who were on the trip with me as well, my friends. We knew that India had a, a large cosmopolitan cities, that they had just sent a, a spaceship to the moon, that there were technology, and that all of those things existed there. But we weren't really aware of what the culture every day was, and certainly we were told that there's a great difference between the city and the villages, which we would be spending a lot of time in. We were told that in the villages, uh, unlike the city where we could actually wear something that was uh, shorter than your ankle length, in the villages we could only wear skirts or dresses that came and covered our ankles. We couldn't have any bare shoulders. And if you wanted to really uh, be mindful of that, you would adhere to those same rules in the city as well. And of course, the uh, women's clothing was extremely different wherever we were. A lot of tourists were wearing just their everyday clothes, but most Indians were very modest, dressed. They had the minimum of skirts or, or such, or at least pants underneath dresses, usually never pants by themselves, and certainly blouses that covered at least the shoulder and there were many women who were dressed in full burqas, meaning covered from head to foot, in a, a black cloth. As females, we were warned that we should never shake hands with a man and that we should not engage in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a man while we were there, especially in public And we were also made aware by some of our uh, guides and people that we were visiting with children's covenant homes, that the Indians are very aware of the class of the people surrounding them. That they could walk into a room and they could discern which class, which person belonged to just by the signs of speech, of clothing, of the accent, of the darkness or lightness of their skin, and of their facial features. And they could sum it up pretty well. And there was a place for everybody in their particular um, caste system. And it made a difference. One day we had the opportunity to visit the largest mosque in Hyderabad. Uh, 
which is a mosque that held over 20,000 worshipers. In front of this huge mosque was a large cement gathering place for all the worshipers to gather at the time of worship. But during the week, it was a large market. And it was a lot like our swap meets, but much more ferocious. It was, a, it was from block upon block upon block. It were salespeople selling their wares, hawking their wares, calling out to you, coming up to you with everything they had to offer you. Cheap. Good quality, they would tell you, but cheap. And they wanted you to buy it. And all of a sudden, when I was in that setting, I began to look around me, and I looked at the, at the pictures of this worship site in front of me, this holy site, and I looked around at all of these people coming at us with their wares to sell, and I felt transported back to a story that I had heard in the Bible And all of a sudden, it made sense to me how Jesus would come upon this scene of the money changers in front of the temple. And Jesus would would say, are you serious? Are you really trying to sell me that necklace when the the God of your ancestors is, is here and we're here to pray? And it overcame me, the biblical story and the times. So it was easy for me to picture Jesus in that setting, even though Jesus was in a faraway place. But in the Mideast, they shared so many of the ancient attitudes and ancient practices. So I had this experience of cars and motorcycles in, along with people riding donkeys down the street and pigs and goats and water buffalo all in the same traffic stream and women featureless and hidden and forbidden to have public interaction with men so all of this provided me with this rich context that I didn't have before for approaching this particular scripture today now this was 2019 remember the picture I painted for you of the of the interaction between men and women. Now let's go back 2,000 years and let's listen to what the word has to say to us today. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized He left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, 
a woman of Samaria. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. So you see, this entire encounter is set up to catch our attention, to ensure that the reader is caught up and engaged in our story. And if you can imagine what I described of 2019 India, going back 2,000 years and describing this interaction between these two strangers, a man and a woman, a Jew and a Samaritan, a rabbi and a woman, I don't think there can be any question that this was scandalous. This was a scandalous story. We have a Jewish rabbi speak to a woman by herself, unheard of. And not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman, outrageous. You see, Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they were, in fact, Jews that had intermarried with an occupying Gentile enemies and adopted the worship of their pagan gods. They had not gone into the diaspora. They were seen as traitors and mongrels. The woman came to fetch water at the sixth hour of the day, which is midday, noon. It was custom in that time that water would be fetched twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, always by the oldest unmarried daughter of the house. She was there because she was either shunned by the women of the village or was avoiding their presence. Why that was so is a cause for another sermon. But this woman is, is portrayed as very bright and astute, with a working knowledge of her religious heritage. Did you notice how she said, are you greater than our ancestors Jacob and Joseph? And she plays this question-answer game with him. And it's as though there's a subtext going on. Are they talking about water or are they talking about something else? And each time she she moves the conversation back to what is real rather than what is metaphor. I don't think it was because she didn't understand. But it's such an engaging conversation. So it's a rather astounding theological debate with this rabbi Jesus in, in which he reveals he reveals himself for the very first time as the Messiah. First time. Okay, so it's got our attention. 
Jesus is willing at that moment, as he has been all along, every time he has an interaction with people, he's willing to do certain things. One, he's willing to disregard the barriers that society or culture have set up in order to block him from saying the truth to another person. He disregards it. He doesn't see people the same way everybody sees people. He doesn't see culture. He doesn't see society. He doesn't see the, uh, the ramifications of stepping outside of your lane. We see that he's not afraid to lift those barriers because they've been humanly erected. He doesn't seem interested in worrying about his reputation or his schedule. I, I, I've always thought it rather funny that the author, the writer, has to put in these little uh, bracketed phrases. He has to say the reason he was talking to this woman was because the, the disciples had gone into town to get something to eat. Doesn't that make you think if they had been there, this scandalous thing would have never happened. They would have intervened and kept the woman away, at least from the writer's point of view, but they weren't there and they were given a good excuse. But he doesn't seem worried about his reputation. He doesn't seem worried about his schedule. He doesn't seem worried that she's going to reject him or that she'll be angry with him or that she'll be frightened. He's not worried about all the what-ifs. He seems most interested in simply sharing the truth with her. That's the intriguing thing about Jesus, one of the intriguing things. It doesn't seem like in Jesus' interaction with others that he ever puts himself first. How will this be perceived by this person? Do you not know who I am? Are you not in awe of standing in front of me? But still he comes into their space and he says, I have something for you. I have a gift. He says it to everybody. Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm going to visit you. Brother Lazarus, come out of the tomb. Little girl, get up and give her something to eat. You'll notice that he doesn't really command her to do anything. He doesn't tell her to go and tell no one, as some, uh, uh, some actions and other gospels say. He doesn't tell her to go back and, and really evangelize or tell anybody. He doesn't, unlike the story of the woman accused of adultery, he doesn't command her to go and sin no more. None of that. Instead, he tells her, anyone who drinks the water that I give will never thirst, not ever, The water I give will be an artesian spring within gushing fountains of endless life. That's the the describing words. And it's so beautiful. It's not the water will lie still within you. You We're not ponds. We're living water. Evangelism is personal. Jesus made this encounter very personal. He goes on to make it even more personal. In a culture where women were invisible, Jesus saw her. 
in a time when religion was reserved for those judged worthy, he chose to share with her the remarkably good news of who he was and what he was bringing. Good news, I think, happens in the most unexpected places and often in chance encounters. If you were to let yourself think back over the years of your life, would those moments not occur to you that were unplanned? They may be moments that were not in the middle of a worship service, not at a Bible study, but they were with a friend or with a person in your family or with a stranger in which you really, truly experienced the living presence of Christ in your life. Maybe it was a moment in the middle of the night when a voice came to you or a dream and you felt and experienced God in a way that you had never experienced before. Maybe it was in a daily routine and you felt at peace and in connected with the world around you in a way that, well, it wasn't every day for you. Good news happens in unexpected places and often in chance encounters. And I think that by locating this encounter in the region of Samaria, John's narrative spurs us, spurs congregations to move out beyond the cozy confines of our daily routines, of the church building or our own membership, perhaps to move beyond what we know to the people and the places beyond our bounds. This is, after all, a story about evangelism. Jesus sharing with this woman the good news and later the woman going and sharing the good news with everyone in the village that shunned her. It invites attentiveness to the unexpected, a willingness to risk stepping outside borders, and an openness to let the Spirit blow where it will. Sometimes we can become so familiar with these confines, and I'm not just talking about the church walls, but the confines of one another, that we forget to even have relationships outside and beyond those who don't think and act and feel the exact same way we do. You might find yourself irritated if you come upon a Bible study that doesn't teach exactly what you've been taught before. You might grow unsettled or disturbed by a sermon that doesn't approach a particular text the way you've always heard it before, or a song that's sung differently, or even a holiday that's celebrated in a different way. Maybe a piece is missing and a piece added here, but you can see if you truly look at those experiences, how, how settled and comfortable we've become within tight walls of each other and even with this, this campus, these buildings. And this story reminds us that maybe that moment isn't inside here. Maybe it's out there. Maybe it's that chance encounter that we have with somebody who's off by themselves 
whose story we aren't familiar with, that we don't know, and yet we feel compelled to stop and talk. This may be a simple cliche, but the human tendency is to flock together with birds of a similar feather, I think, and to stay comfortable with the known. This urge by us is in constant need of challenge and provocation. And that's what scripture does for us time and time again, as Jesus does, stepping out of what's known, stepping out of his role as a a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish male rabbi. The story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman induces communities of faith to risk crossing boundaries and, and we're to be open to chance encounters where good news can be shared. Out there, not only will we find those who are eager for good news, but we'll also find Jesus. Jesus is out in the margins. And that's called evangelism. And that's a very scary word for many people. Because we all know and we've experienced evangelism malpractice. We've experienced it from people and we've experienced it from media, from evangelism which has no heart, has no soul, and has no relationship, simply has a goal and an objective. But evangelism, its anatomy, its intent, its co-conspirator, the Holy Spirit, Evangelism is when we are called to love God and to love one another. And when we love one another, out of that love grows relationships in which we truly care for one another. And as our relationships deepen, we bear witness to the love and the goodness of God. And we can offer living waters that gush up and flow out of us and out of their lives, that overflow the banks of our of our everyday life and our rivers and our gushing water are joined with others and before you know it there is a sea and crashing waves and the wonder of being immersed in it all those of us who claim to follow Jesus the one whose life we dedicate ourselves to reflecting all of us we have to be able to understand that the primary vocation of Jesus was evangelist. He was helping people to understand how to love each other and how to love God, that the bridge was there, that, there was, that Jesus was that bridge, that there was no longer any need for there to be a grand canyon chasm between us and each other, between us and God, and that we have been handed our sacred orders as evangelists as well. We cannot follow Jesus. It's simply impossible to follow Jesus and have no part in sharing the good news. That sets the prisoners free, that gives the hungry food, that gives the thirsty something to drink. It's simply not possible. Jesus chose this unlikely, hated Samaritan woman to be the first evangelist. 
the first one to share the remarkable news, good news of who he was. This wasn't the first time that Jesus had chosen the most unlikely people. Jesus chose the most unlikely people to be his disciples. Fishermen. Fishermen probably were not even educated. They hadn't even been brought up learning to read or write the ancient texts and, and understand the deep theology and the midrash of the Jewish faith. Jesus chose these people whose canvas was wide open. And maybe that's why Jesus chooses the most unlikely people to be his head and heart and hands here on earth. You and me. While we were in India, I experienced all the things that I told you about at the beginning. But there was much more than that because it was very different within the Christian setting in India. And by that, I don't mean in any way that Christians somehow have it on the up of any other people in India. But I do know that the spirit of Christ was alive and well. And because of that spirit of Christ, there were certain things that happened that couldn't happen in the culture. I was invited to preach in one of the churches. And the congregation could not have been more welcoming. People lined up to have any one of our team members lay hands on them and pray, both men and women. I stood in, in two tanks of water separately at different times with a male pastor as we baptized together 35 teenagers. Again and again, barriers were crossed and boundaries pushed back. And not at our initiation, we would never presume that. But at their understanding of the way the gospel lifts barriers and invites us all to come into this grand enterprise we call faith. When we met one another with the love of Christ, and in my mind, I could imagine the Samaritan woman arriving at the well with little hope for a different life. And I could also imagine her leaving that well, not really with circumstances changed, but with a heart transformed that she left with faith and purpose, bravely going back to this village where she couldn't even draw water at the same time of day. And she wasn't even interested whether they believed her or not as the story goes. She simply went and shared the news. And here's the most radical thing of all. The text says later on, and they believed her. And they came out to hear Jesus for themselves. Wow. That's transformation. She did what she could with the good news that had been given her. And I wonder if we could do any less. Thanks be to God.